The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everybody. This is your guest host today, Jonathan Ruth here. And wherever you are listening from, I hope you are experiencing warmer weather than we are here in New England. Uh, I am really excited today to, um, uh, to, to be joined by our guest, Harry Josephson, who's the author of Escorted Away. Um, our guest today is going to share his story of going through 10 years with a son who was suffering from a substance use disorder. His journey started when his son began to use drugs and drink alcohol at age 14 and continues on to when he achieved a year of sobriety at the age of 24. Harry is going to share these lessons with us in his book, uh, escorted away and in our interview today. Harry hopes that his story will become a resource for those affected by substance abuse. And just as another uh, further introduction for Harry, uh, Harry Josephson grew up in a small town in southwest Ohio. He received his bachelor's degree from Ohio State University and a law degree from Capital University Law School. Harry now works at a large financial services firm where he has been for 30 years. He has two children, a son, age 25, and a daughter, age 12. Good afternoon, Harry, and thank you again for joining us today on One Hour at a Time. Yes, Jonathan, thank you for having me here, and hopefully uh, the messages I can convey will help other folks that may be listening. That's terrific. I um, <clears throat> I want our listeners to know that um, you know when we spoke earlier, you were really interested in just that and sharing your story so that others. Uh, who are maybe going through similar circumstances have a resource to go to and also, uh, you know, have information about your experience that may be helpful to them. Right. Um, I feel like I, I basically went through hell for uh, probably eight years out of the ten before I, I got so desperate I started looking around for other resources and and, and started attending Naranon meetings, uh, parent support groups, and that sort of thing, and, and that helped me tremendously. Um, but I feel like this is something that that I believed I was going through maybe alone, because there's a lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of isolation involved. There's a lot of embarrassment. You are reluctant to tell other people, even in your own family. That that you're having these issues with uh, your son, and uh, so so there's a lot of loneliness, and uh, reaching out for help is something I didn't do very well, and uh, I I sure wish I had someone to talk to and to tell me things they'd experienced going through that. It took me a long time to have the willingness to do that. So that that's basically the reason I wrote the book was to. If, if there's any opportunity to help a parent or even uh, their child, and perhaps sometimes you might even be able to save a life in the process, it would really be worth it. So that's kind of what I had in mind. Great. 
Great. And I think, you know, Harry, your your experience is really similar uh, to a lot of other folks whose, whose children are, are suffering and they often feel so isolated, so alone, um, so embarrassed, and because of the stigma that, that accompanies uh, addiction and substance use, um, they don't feel like there's anybody to turn to in their immediate circle. And it certainly sounds like that was part of your experience. Right. That that's very true. I would say that there are many, many people who have not experienced this in their own families. Who, if if they hear your son's a heroin addict, uh, they look at you like like perhaps you have two heads, and and why don't you just try tough love and things like that? And and uh, so so there isn't. I think there was an embarrassment uh, certainly for me to discuss that with others because not knowing how they might react. Uh, the, I felt very stigmatized in my own family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and so yeah. in writing the book, um, uh, it sounded also like you're, you're hoping to help other people be able to reach out. Uh, that's true. Yes, I would urge people to, uh, and I went to see a psychologist, more of a one-on-one thing that was very confidential and, I didn't feel like that really helped me a whole lot. And uh, when I started going to the support groups, the Naranons, the Alanons, and found other people who were in the same boat and could, could share other experiences, I, I suddenly found that there's a whole new world out there uh, of individuals who who are basically in the same situation and would be willing to, uh, to help and to listen to your story and... Uh, to at least share advice. We always talk in our meetings about, about not giving advice to other folks, but telling what worked for us, what worked. And that's what I'm about is to tell people what I did, what worked for me, what didn't work for me. I've ex- uh, explained my book is uh, what I've called a what not to do manual for parenting. So, <laughs> and I'm certainly no expert, but I learned the hard way on a lot of things. Right. Right. Again, as so many people do, I mean, I think, you know, you, uh, as parents, you know, nobody's given the, the manual on how to, you know, how to raise a child and, and you know, how to be uh, the best parent. You know, we all learn from our experience and from talking with others. And, um, you know, sometimes that goes really well and sometimes it really doesn't. So, uh, and it's certainly, you know, it's always a benefit when, when somebody has an experience uh, and, is, and is okay saying, you know, this really didn't work. You know, I would not suggest that. And that's as strong a statement as somebody saying, I tried this and it really worked great. Right. I would say that, that one of the biggest things not to do uh, is is to try to help too much. So I think we all, as parents, believe that we ought to have the solutions for our children when they're having difficulties. We hate to see them in pain. Um, I, was, I was one of the best... Um, I guess I'd call it rescuers on earth. If my son was was in any kind of trouble, whether it was uh, legal or he was in any kind of pain, I would try to alleviate the source of that pain. And the thing I've learned the hard way is that I earned my pain, or I earned to be the kind of person I am from the pains and the bad experiences that I've had. And our kids are no different. They need to experience the outcome of, of their bad choices 
And I believe today that until they learn to experience the outcome of their bad choices, they can't really grow into adults that have a responsible mentality. And until they experience the pain of uh, the behaviors that they've done with their addiction, they're unlikely to get to the point where they're going to say, I really need to stop doing this because this is not working out well in my life. <laughs> and and until they get to that point of of experiencing those negative outcomes, uh, there's there's very little hope for them. And in my case, my son, I think there was a lot of hope. I mean, there's a lot of hope because he is now sober and has been sober going on three years. He got sober uh, on the 17th of July in, in 2012. And... Uh, you know, God willing, and one day at a time, he'll get to his third year here this July. So there's hope, but not until he started to experience the consequences of his own bad uh, choices and behaviors was that possible. Mm-hmm. Well, and it certainly sounds like um, you got information that was helpful to you, you know, through your participation in Naranon that said, you know, um, sometimes people need you know, or oftentimes people need to learn from their failings as well as their from, from their successes. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's very true. And it, it's on both levels. I had to learn from my failures too. So until I learned from <laughs> my failures and my bad choices, like uh, giving him money and, and trying to bail him out of jail and, and paying for attorneys and things like that, until I learned from those bad choices, then he literally couldn't, learn from his because he learned what he learned as my son was uh, dad will get me off the hook from whatever happens so mm-hmm. that kept him in a mindset of I can continue to do whatever I want right right because there were really right. no no negative choices right or I mean no right. negative and outcomes the, and the pattern that he learned to experience was I can do whatever I want and if there's bad stuff someone will take care of me Exactly. And they'll, they'll, they'll figure out how to get me out of the trouble. That's true. And there's a huge life lesson there for all of us, not just for him or for me, but but I believe for everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, I, the your book starts at a really interesting point. Uh, and I'm just going to uh, just quickly um, uh, talk about the, you know, the, the intro here. You know, when you first started writing about your experiences, it was after you had, him, had your son escorted against his will from your home near Central Ohio to a disciplinary boarding school back in 2005. And he had just turned 17 years old. So here, you're, um, you're, you're kind of, you're starting us off and saying, you know, this was, this was sort of that pivotal point in your, in your, in your relationship and, and in this process that, uh, that maybe things started to, the, the pattern of behavior maybe started to shift a little bit. Well, it did, but it, there was still a long time between that point and when I really learned and when I could look in the mirror and say, when is he going to get it, you know? Uh, right. But at age, at age 17, yes, he was he was out just about every night. He, he would sneak out of the house and uh, go party with friends, you know, come back in at, at, at 5 or 6 a.m. And, uh, and then not go to school. And if we tried to wake him up... Uh, he would swear at us. Uh, mm-hmm. He would fight with us uh, to get him up to go to school. 
and and no amount of warning from from probation officers or from the school that he was going to get suspended made any difference. So at the time I made this decision, he was approximately one year behind in school in high school, and I just knew at that point that he would not graduate and. He had had multiple run-ins with the police, and I, I finally had a police officer tell me, you got to do something about this kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I started investigating uh, different avenues and talking to my psychologist, and I had him uh, literally, uh, two big men came to our home and picked him up and drove him nine or ten hours away to a boarding school in Iowa for uh, disciplinary problem kids where he stayed for a year and completed high school. He's he's extremely intelligent. He, he completed high school in less time in a year than it would have taken him two years if he'd stayed home had, had he started going to school. So right. he, he got through high school, got the diploma, uh, and and then we can talk about this in a minute if you want, but but I was naive enough to think he would come home fixed after being there right. for a year. So right. that's, I, I think parents want to be so helpful or, or so hopeful. That's really true. And I, it's been my experience um, here at Westbridge that, you know, there's a, there's a real relief that comes with sort of that first week of, of uh, having your child in treatment when there's been so much going on leading up to that and there's been so much uncertainty about whether or not your child will uh, bond to the people there or, you know, really um, start to see the light in terms of what, you know, what their behavior is doing to them and to the rest of the family. And... Um, the expectations of that, and particularly in that first uh, treatment episode, can be really high, uh, you know, upon the individual who's suffering with the addiction or, or the uh, substance use disorder. So, um, so you're certainly you know, you're certainly right on in terms of that uh, that flavor of you know parents often feeling like, okay, I'm going to send my son or daughter here, and then they're going to be all set when they're done. We're going to talk more about that when we come back from our break. Um, And, uh, again, uh, we're with Harry Josephson, author of Escorted Away. We'll be back after the commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. 
and Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody, to One Hour at a Time. This is Jonathan Ruthier, your guest host today, and I'm with Harry Josephson, author of Escorted Away, which is the story of Harry and his family's journey through his son's addiction from the age of 14 uh, to, the, to his eventual sobriety at the age of 24. Harry, welcome back from the break, and uh, just before we, we broke, we were talking a little bit about your first experience of, of reaching out for help in a, in a, in a professional way and, and uh, having your son brought to a um, therapeutic boarding school or disciplinary boarding school. Um, if you, tell, tell our audience a little bit about what that was like for you to kind of get to that decision. Well, it was uh, a gut-wrenching time. Um, I, I really didn't know what to do. I, I felt like I was at my wit's end. Um, I had a police officer tell me to do something about him. He wasn't attending school. Uh, he was even told by a magistrate of the court or a probation officer, I forget which, that that you know if he didn't get his act together, uh, he would be removed from our home and put into uh, a foster home. And and none of that seemed to work. And uh, it it was gut wrenching to see these men physically put him in the back of a car, and he looked out the window at me and said, "You're making a big mistake. I'm turning to a life of effing crime." That's basically what he said. And uh, you will never see me again. And, uh, I mean, I had, I was heavy-hearted for sure when he left. And there was a sense of relief. But at the same time, uh, I, I didn't know when I'd see him again. I, I was told that it might be four to six months before he earned the privileges. Uh, in this school, you have to earn privileges. And uh, they do get to write a letter home every week, but... They don't get a visit until they they graduate to a certain level uh, mm-hmm. by by good behavior, if you will. And okay. so I got these gut wrenching letters every week of you know this is not going to work for me. They put me in this small room. I went to the bathroom on myself. I mean, it was it was just just some horrible stuff for a parent to have to read and to think about and. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, all the while the school's telling me, you will hear some of the worst stories about us that you'll ever hear. The food's terrible, the accommodations are rotten, you know, just to try to get you to, to change your mind. And right. uh, that's that's exactly what he did. <laughs> oh. So, what, you know, that must have been really a scary time. I mean, here you were... Um, you're separating your son from the rest of his family at the time, and and he's telling you all these horrible things about his experience, and 
Uh, and I think even in one of his letters, he says, you know, I understand why you did this, Dad, but this is terrible, and I'm going to change my behavior if you just take me home. You know, that, right. you know, exactly. I, I just read that, and I just, I just felt my, my own heartstrings reaching out. And, and you know, how did you, how did you and your family cope with that? Well, I, I, I have to confess, I felt as if I might give in many times to this and I've, I've, I've since figured out that my son is and was a master manipulator. And I believe most addicts are. And uh, because they've learned that if they say the right things, they'll get something they want. And, and my son had been taught that through some really bad experiences at home and from my enabling. And so I, but I, I wavered. I wavered mightily a lot. And uh, this this was not an easy time for me whatsoever. Right. But I kept like I prayed and uh, I I just but but then you'll see later in the book that that you know when he got out of there I I went back to a lot of my old behaviors as well. <laughs> At the same right. time he did. <laughs> right. Right. Well, the patterns repeat. Right. Unless, right. You know, sure unless do. something else changes to to shift things. So um, so you you talk about. You talked about your son's letters, and um, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something that just seemed really compelling to me about your story is, you know, the way your son communicated back to you in writing. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, about, you know, some of those letters and what they meant to you? Well, I have a stack about four inches thick of all the letters that he wrote me while he was in, in that place for a year, and it was normally one letter per week that he emailed to me. And there were some uh, confession letters in there where he told all the things that he had done with respect to drugs, how he mm. he researched the Internet to figure out, in his mind, on each drug that he tried, how much of it he could use safely, quote-unquote. Um, there's, there's a website out there that these kids go to to uh, determine or to read up on drugs, and mm. certainly in his site. Yeah, or in his situation, he did that and believed he could use drugs um, safely. But he's told me that that the drugs made him feel, in a way, he had a depressed uh, childhood growing up. He was not very happy. Uh, he he seemed to uh, take after his mother. That he was kind of chronically unhappy, and uh, and and said that that the drugs made him feel good for maybe the first time in his life that he could remember. And so it was uh, a self-medicating thing. Even the psychologist said that. But uh, he he wrote some really lengthy letters where he went into a lot of detail about the things he had done and how sorry he was for them. And if I would just let him come home, he would change. And and he knows now, I know now, Dad, that I can never do this stuff again. Mm-hmm. Um at age, at age 17 yet as as we know from the story there was still another 7 years to go after that right right but it sounded like he you know he started to get a glimpse of clarity or at least <clears throat> an awareness that okay this what i've been doing really isn't right but it sounded like he was also saying you know I, you know uh i need support in this i need everything to change if i'm going to be getting better right and he told me uh, many years later, that that year he spent there was was, and this is probably where he uh, achieved the clarity, was the fact that he spent a year without any substances, 
And that was like the only time he did that between age 14 and age 24. I spent an actual year without using any substances. Right. Well, you know, you're, um, I'm sure that you were shocked when you, you know, received the confession letter. I'm going to just, uh, again, sort of refer to, back to your book, Chapter 11, A Confession. You talk Mm -hmm. about, um, you know, and you reproduced the entire letter um, here because it was really so full of uh, red flags and warning signs for other parents. This so this right. letter really chronicles your son's addiction from the start. Um, behaviors, you know, in terms of his, uh, you know, leaving the house, going to school, leaving school, um, getting into trouble. Uh, his some of his you know, relationships with other people, uh, and lists, uh, you know, all of the different substances he was using. I can only imagine what this must have felt like to you uh, and uh, to your ex-wife when you, you know, when you when you both received this letter. What was what was that like for you? Well, it scared me to death. I mean, all the things he had taken from acid to cocaine, ecstasy, things that that can literally kill you. Uh, and in in that letter, he said, "I've I've done everything, Dad, but heroin." Well, as as the story went, he used heroin later after he got back, within a year of coming back from there. But uh, yeah. all of the things in there were a revelation to me that for the first time uh, I realized this kid could literally kill himself with right. the things he's doing. And uh, that that raises things from just annoyance, you know, getting up in the middle of the night and having to go to to the police station to pick him up for a curfew violation all the way to, you know, he could die from this. And right. there, there were times in his addiction that I knew he was going to die. I just knew it in my heart. And you know, uh, what a sense of you know powerlessness you must have felt about that. I mean, here, you know, you think you're doing everything right as a parent based on you know whatever society and our culture says in terms of being supportive and you know trying to keep folks away, uh, keep your children away from trouble. And yet, here's here's all of this information that says, wow, you know. Um, my son, you know, my son could die from all of this that, that he's experiencing. Yeah, and I had never, I, I guess I was naive when this whole thing started and and had never used other than some alcohol back in, uh, in college. Um, and I admit I probably used too much of that from time to time. But uh, and the drug experimentation and all the different drugs and what they can do to you were really something that I didn't know much about at all. And uh, mm-hmm. I I think it's really easy to not see the warning signs if you don't know much about it. And that's right. why I would encourage other parents to learn as much as they can because there are things kids go through that they could be depression or or other things of that nature, you know, other psychological problems. Teens go through a lot of stress, but there there's some warning signs of uh, drug abuse and maybe even addiction that could be overlooked if they yeah. don't know those warning signs. So again, you're, you know, this this starts. You know, we talk about sort of uh, you know the, your introduction starting when when your son is 17, but you had that that window into his past through his letter. 
and maybe you could talk right. a little bit about you know what some of those you know what what were some of those flags that that maybe other parents could benefit from um, that you saw along the way or that you learned about after the fact. Okay, well, um, he started to become a lot more private, uh, locking his door at night uh, so that so that we couldn't get in his room, and he would. Uh, it, it seemed like he kind of suddenly, may, maybe not so suddenly, but started to change over all of his friends. So when, I guess looking back, uh, he kind of went from what I'd call some wholesome friendships and, and some guys he was in the band with that uh, seemed like good kids when they came over, and all of a sudden the friendships were, were all different. And then the stuff that he enjoyed doing, he used to like to go skiing and uh, go fishing, go to the pond and try to catch frogs, just things that kids do. He was very interested in the outdoors. And then suddenly, all the interests started to change. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, music and the movies that he wanted to listen to and watch seemed so much darker and uh and I know it's a fine line, but it, it just it just seemed like he had completely abandoned his old ideas and his his old relationships and 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 suddenly he was around uh some unsavory characters and um mm-hmm. it just seemed like his whole life was changing right before our eyes right and and you know how did you feel as a parent watching this happen and you know um did you you know was it easy to see, or were you kind of, you know, questioning, well, maybe this is sort of a normal developmental phase? You know, where were you at, you know, in your thinking around that time? Well, it concerned me. Uh, I mean, he wanted to wear all black clothes and things like that, and it, it was like, and, and would say things like, uh, I want to dress in black because it matches my mood. And uh, I hate the sunshine. I like the dark because it matches my mood. And he even carved in his in his hand with with a pocket knife the word uh, forsaken. And so those kinds of things. And you hear about these things with kids, and and you know that there's some 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 psychological things that can create that. But. Yeah. You know, what that can lead to, I think those are all warning signs. That, and, and again, I'm no expert, but I think those are all warning signs that you really need to do something. And I was just confused. I, I didn't know what to do. And again, that's such a common experience for folks because you're, what you're seeing is not at all, you know, that wasn't in the parent manual, right? <clears throat> you know, what, what to do when your son carves, you know, carves things in his hand and all of a sudden wants to wear dark clothes and be in the dark all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's no, there hasn't been a handbook for that. No. No, there no. sure wasn't. No. No. So, um you know, and I think the uh, you know the the overall lesson that you learned though is you know when you start to see changes, uh, I guess don't assume right. Don't assume that they're just they're sort of na- natural developmental stages, or you know it's, there are other things maybe to be looking out for, especially if you feel on the inside that you know there's a level there's cause for concern. Yes, I would agree with that 100. <laughs> percent No doubt, Jonathan. Don't 
don't take those things for granted. It's just uh, normal developmental things. Check it out. Right. So we're going to uh, talk a little bit more after the break about about your experience, um, and in particular, you know, what it, what is it that you went through in your transformation to really be able to help your son? Again, uh, we're going to go to commercial, but we'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, to speak further with Harry Josephson, author of Escorted Away. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you know about Reiki? This method of healing can complement Western medicine as well as other alternative practices. Besides healing, it can have the additional effect of making you feel more positive about yourself and the world around you. By tuning into For the Love of Reiki with host Paula Vale, you'll find how Reiki can improve your health, bring balance into your life, and fill you with joy. For the Love of Reiki is broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody, to One Hour at a Time. This is your guest host, Jonathan Ruthier. And I'm here with our guest today, Harry Josephson, author of Escorted Away, which chronicles he and his family's journey through his son's addiction from age 14 to 24. Welcome back, Harry. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we were talking about in this last segment was uh, this, this feeling of awareness, you know, um, that you know, things had started to happen for your son at the age of 14, and, and um, you know, some things had started to change for him. And I was just wondering, you know, was there... Is anybody in your life at that point saying, "Hey, Harry, you got to wake up. You know, things are things are definitely, you know, not right with your son." Well, not too many, actually. Uh, psychologist, a police officer, uh, my ex-wife, who we fought all the time, and don't be surprised if you're in this situation if you and your spouse are not on the same page, because that's pretty yeah. frequent from everything I hear. But um, it's it's one of those things where my attempt to keep it private, uh, I, did, I didn't share a whole lot. Even, even within my own family, my mother and my brothers and people that I trusted that I didn't talk to about this because I was, I was embarrassed, frankly, 
And uh, but but the people who did would say things like, "You've got to do something. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't just just let him, uh, you know, basically run you around." I mean, there was disrespect going on, uh, bad language in the home. It was it was awful. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, people who saw it up close would say, "You you just can't let that go on." But it's 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 difficult for someone who hasn't experienced it to know what mm-hmm. it feels like, and uh, I guess I guess that's all I can say about it. Is it, it's it's like I mean I really wanted to hide it. I I didn't. Yeah. There were times when I had to leave uh, work functions and dinners and miss events because of things that were going on with my son in his life. But I, I never shared why. I just said there's. There's there's a personal family situation that's arisen that I've got to go deal with, and 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 those of us who have addicts in the family know that that all too often, you know, holidays are normally uh, ruined by the addict because you have expectations that they're going to do this or that, like the rest of the family, and they don't. Mm-hmm. They just they just don't live up to your expectations, and uh, and then there's there's other crises that come up. You want to go on a trip out of town and. And uh, there's there's a crisis with your kid that you have to deal with, and and it's just uh, there's no end <laughs> to that stuff right. as long as they're a practicing addict. So so you have you know so you had some people in your life saying you know uh, even though again you you really um, like a lot of folks really tried to just sort of recover it and say you know we'll take care of this within the family, but mm-hmm. you know some people were saying hey you got to do something here. But what were you supposed to do? I guess you know, and I think that's the message that a lot of parents get. Well, you got to do something here. You know, you need to fix this, and um, you know. But but who's given the tools, you know, to really work with the situation? And I think the other part that's important for our listeners to understand too is that the, you know, um, the addiction does not only grab hold of the individual who's using the substances; it really grabs hold of their 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 social circle as well. And um, you know, the person who has the the addiction um, is suffering, but others are suffering at the same time. And the, and the patterns of behavior all support you know the addiction continuing until uh, you know until one or more people in that system can make their own changes. That's true. Uh, what I hear in in uh, in the groups that I attend is that every addict affects about five or six other people's lives around them, and mm-hmm. that those folks are often just as sick. They talk about the addict having an illness. That mm-hmm. that the folks around them are oftentimes just as ill, if not more so. I think in my case, maybe in some respects more so than the actual addict because I changed my life. My my whole decade when I was in my 50s kind of blurred past and I'm giving my son money, I'm bailing him out of this, this problem and that problem, paying for car impoundment and, and towing charges, you know, buying new tires for the car. I mean, it goes on and on. It's endless stuff that I did to try to cover up and to help and to keep him from getting into more trouble. Uh, I mean, it's like as a parent, I, I was deathly afraid and that he would either die or that he would have a record that would prevent him from ever getting a job. I mean, the horrors that, that you imagine in your mind are yeah. are really terrible things. 
Right. Well, and, and, you know, some of them, I mean, they're, they're, they're terrible things that, you know, that you're thinking in your mind, but they're also really possible consequences from somebody's use of so many substances. And that, you know, that's the, that's the really difficult reality that parents face a lot, that, you know, if they want to try to support their family member's future, you know, and, 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 you know, have, you know, keep opportunities in mind, you know, how do they help, uh, you know, protect the person's um, reputation and, you know, their own family reputation in that process to make things more, you know, uh, more accessible, I guess, to their to their children. And it certainly right. sounds like you, true. You, went, you went through that internal struggle yourself a number of times, you know. How do I help my son get to that next step? I mean, a couple hundred dollars to, you know, pay for a room for, you know, a couple of weeks or, you know, put some new tires on the car will help him get a job. And so, so your behavior, you know, became about trying to protect him but also promote something that would be good for him. The unfortunate side is that, you know, um, because of the action, you know, of your son's illness, you know, the severity of it and the activity of it, that all went uh, back into substance use at the time. That's right. I I think, uh, looking back, I have described it to others as I was I was literally handing my son a loaded gun, putting the bullets in for him, and allowing mm-hmm. him to play a Russian roulette with his life at my expense. And yeah. the realization of that, um, in looking back, is, is is still something that's extremely difficult to deal with. And I think, and one thing I'd like to get across to the listeners, I guess, is the leader of our Naranon meeting always says, and he says it almost every week. He says that he's talked to the addicts or the experts. He says I talked to the experts about what made them get clean. And these are addicts who got clean. And he said, the experts are the addicts. So what happened to make you decide to get clean? And he says, they always go through a litany of of some things that we think are very horrible things that happened to them. I woke up in my own vomit on a crack house floor. I got arrested and sent, sent to prison for five years. And he, these are like some really, really terrible things. And he said, and it seems like the ones who get clean have experienced some pretty bad things by our mm-hmm. standards. And he says, I, I have decided not to judge things as right or wrong or good or bad when it comes to addicts because it may be that the thing that we think is really terrible is the thing they need to get clean. And, and he said the one thing he's never heard him say is, my parents did this for me or they did that for me. I've never heard that. He said, I've never heard that once from any of them. <laughs> right. And that, that was extremely impactful for me. It sure sounds like it. I mean, I, well, <clears throat> I, I got chills up and down my, my spine when you said, you know, I'd basically been told I'd been giving my son, you know, a loaded gun and, uh, and, and then paid for it myself. And, <clears throat> you know, what, what kind of a revelation was that for you? It, it's like, you know, how would I live with the situation if he overdosed and died because I had given him the money to continue his heroin habit? Mm-hmm. And why? Because he's in pain and he doesn't want to go through withdrawal, right? But right. he he went through withdrawal in jail probably three different times, cold turkey. Mm-hmm. And, 
and the first two times didn't do the trick. So it's it, it's tough out there. I mean, it, the things that may be required of an addict to get them to the point where they're willing to get clean and be, as they call it, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not easy for them. Well, I mean, it's not easy for you as a parent either, right? And and I think um, no. you know you you do a really nice job um, describing your transformation in this whole process as and and not only in terms of how it helped protect you, but then how it helped change the system that that then created the opportunity for your son uh, to you know, to find his own path. So in my you know, book, after. I, after so many years of you know, you know of sort of being stuck in a similar pattern, what was it that finally helped you? Uh, you know, be able to sort of look at things differently and say, you know what, this stops now, but it starts with me. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, um, I, it was a process, and uh, I had to go through my own horrors, my own list of horrors, uh, spending thousands of dollars. Uh, you know doing things over and over again that never worked. Uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same uh, same things over and over and and expecting a different result. But I, I got to my wit's end, and, and finally, actually, my new wife, my second wife, uh, uh, looked up and, and found a non parent group for me to attend in town. Okay. And I went to that, and I started listening to some stories from people who were going through the same things. And I heard hope. I heard it's it's not something that that I can cure. There's there there's three C's. You didn't cause it. You can't cure it, and you can't control it. That's what they right. talked about the very first night, and that was a revelation for me. I th- I thought I could control it. I thought I was in control. You know. I right, could cure right. this if I just said the right things, did the right things. And I found out that, that those with experience dealing with addicted children of their own know that they are powerless, and that's that's the first step right. in the 12 steps. That's right. That's right. So we're going to go to break, but we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about this concept of powerlessness and, and how um, your own change really helped create the opportunity for your son to find his path. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Healthcare professionals spend a lot of time keeping the rest of us from losing it, getting too stressed out, and from burning out. But who helps the healthcare professional from avoiding the same things? 
A professional coach can help you avoid burnout and by doing so lead a healthier life. Tune in to Dr. Raji Menon's Stress Busters Corner. We're here to help those who help everyone else. We help them avoid burnout themselves. Tune in every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. And welcome back, everybody. This is Jonathan Ruthia, your guest host today, and I'm... Interviewing our guest, Harry Josephson, uh, author of Escorted Away, the story of his uh, family's recovery uh, from his son's addiction from age 14 to 24. So, again, Harry, welcome back. And just, just before we went to the break, you know, we were talking about your first Naranon meeting and um, you know, your, your first experience with um, learning that you know, maybe there were things that you wanted to change or that you could change about you that would help create the, the opportunity. One thing I want to say, you know, is that, um, you know, as a dad, you know, I, I, I think maybe that that's a, somewhat of a different experience. And, you know, what was it like for you as a man and as a dad to come into an Arnon meeting um, and under, try to understand this concept of powerlessness? Well, I guess uh, the first thing I would say is I, I'm, I'm not accustomed to uh, reaching out and asking for help. So <laughs> that's mm-hmm. probably not in my nature. Maybe some other men are in that situation. They seem to think they should be the fixer that's in control and can handle everything. And uh, so so it was uncomfortable just to walk in there. And I believe, because I've heard other parents say it, that that, that when they come into the meetings for the first time, it's all about trying to figure out how to get their kid to stop using drugs. Mm-hmm. And it, it quickly shifts to being about us as family members and parents because we quickly learn that we, didn't, that, that we can't cure the situation with our addicted child and that there's only one person that we really have any control over, and that's ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that that was very enlightening for me because number 1 it's empowering to know that that you can't control the outcome and that that your son or my son is only going to be able to control his own outcomes but then at the same time maybe even more importantly to know that I'm the only one who can control my own outcomes so the problem wasn't with me wasn't with my son it was with me and so I had to learn how to change myself. I had to have the courage to change, as they say in the serenity prayer, know what things I had to let go of. And that was what happened to my son. I I literally learned that I had to envision my life without my son because there were some some very real fears that he may not survive. It's a terrible mm-hmm. illness. And so... I had to go through this mental process of saying, what would I do if I didn't have my son anymore? And I would have to learn to go on. But I also had to learn 
how to change my behavior in ways that, I mean, my life has to be acceptable to me. And it wasn't. It was not acceptable. The choices I was making and the things I was doing were not acceptable to me. And I had to come to grips with that. So that that's what the meetings are all about. It's about how do we as individuals learn to live with ourselves and make choices that make sense to us. Right. And almost magically, it seemed like when that happened with me, then I started to, det- they call it detaching with love, I started to detach somewhat from my son, and I think he started to take more responsibility for himself at some point. Not right. immediately. It's a process. It's a process. <laughs> That's what right. they always say. Right. Well, I was going to ask you about that. You know, so when did you, when do you think, you know, your son started to see that you were changing and that you know, maybe he needed to change too? Well, a really important event transpired the last time he went to jail, and this was really the time he, he got sober in July of 2012. He was, he was in jail uh, in another county and had somewhere between 30 to 60 days to serve. He knew he was going to do a minimum of 30 and maybe as many as 60. And he sent me, he tried to call me and, can you bail me out? Can you get me an attorney? The same old questions that I had always gotten. And right. I sent him this letter that I reproduce in my book. But, but the gist of it is, I think you're, I've tried everything with you. Nothing has worked. I can't do any more. I'm powerless over over what you decide to do with your life. If I were you, and I'm not, I would try to get into treatment again. And he'd been to probably nine or ten treatments by that point. Uh, try to get into treatment, take it seriously. But but the bottom line is, you're going to have to start over at the bottom with nothing, mm. because I, I I I literally cannot help anymore. I just can't do it. And that, he he tells me today, he had uh, a sponsor in AA that told him when he read the letter, he said, this was divinely inspired. <laughs> this letter was divinely inspired. You need to keep this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's really a great message. I mean, you know, uh, and what a great opportunity that your son had right there with with somebody who understands, who was able to understand the principles of a spiritual recovery that, you know, uh, you know, somebody was sort of showing him the light. You know, your dad's, you know, he's basically saying, this is a gift. <laughs> this letter is a gift to you. Um, maybe yeah. it doesn't feel like that initially, but it, but it sure is. Yeah, and dad can't solve your problems for you. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. So... Um, so, you know, uh, I mean, we've, we've certainly covered a lot of ground today. You know, what is your relationship like with your son now that he's been in, in sobriety for almost three years, um, which is right. just wonderful. And if he's out there listening, I just want to say congratulations and keep it up. Um, you know, what, what are things like for you guys today? It's great. Our relationship is really, we've always been very close and, uh, he, uh, he calls me probably, uh, three or four times a week, he's he's going back to a community college again, and uh, he he had had about a year uh, in in fits and starts, and now he's getting close to his associate's degree, making straight A's. But he he calls me all the time to tell me how he's doing and wants to make sure that I I am kept apprised <laughs> of his uh, his progress and how things are going in his life and. And and there used to be times where it would go for days and weeks and months without any contact 
unless he needed money or something, and then it was like on a daily basis. But uh, it's it, it's a great relationship, and uh, I it's it's very gratifying to me. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, well, I mean, what a you turnaround! Know, <laughs> well, and your son's very fortunate that you that you found the courage to look at the things that you could change. So that, and again, uh, you know, doors would open up for him in his recovery. Um, I so, agree. I can't, uh, I can't agree more. <laughs> so, Harry, I want to thank you for being on the show today, um, and for our listeners, uh, I just want to underscore that, that Harry's uh, Harry's book is a great read. Um, it's called Escorted Away. It's available on Amazon. Uh, dot com. It's also available on Ex Libris uh, online bookstore. Um, and Harry, is it available anywhere else, or is that those are the well? Uh, those are the best. I mean, you could get it through Amazon as well. And uh, okay, but I also have uh, a blog that I do and a website on escortedaway.com, and I have a Twitter page that I try to post articles and things that could help people with with addiction and uh, and you know parenting addicts, and that's. Terrific. That's uh, Harry Josephson at Escorted Away. Terrific. All right, well, hopefully our listeners will check that out. Again, I want to thank you for being the guest on our show today. And for all of you listeners out there, um, uh, thank you for tuning into our One Hour at a Time broadcast today. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.